So we talked about the fact that I uh, wrote a report and had a chance to visit a lot of different facilities uh, of the Spring Manufacturers Institute. And, you know, what did I see and how does it relate to the, the seven forces? So the seven forces look at customers and your marketing and sales channels. It looks at your supply chain. It looks at your internal people, products, and processes. It looks at areas of disruption. It looks at competition. It looks at technology. And it looks at marketing and government constraints. And, and I could probably try to go through each of those, but um, in the area of technology, what impressed me was the breadth of technology. I saw machines from 1920 that were still chunking out material, and then I saw the most effective multi-bendable 12 state not 12 station but 12 types of different bends it could do to make the most complicated little springs from some manufacturer of the equipment out of germany and people were just now trying to get that machine up and running some had graveyards of old equipment for no reason that i can think of uh, that were just taking up space and eating up money and stuff. Maybe they thought someday they'd be able to use some sort of a spare part for that. And then there were others who, with the new equipment, you know, brand new, almost equivalent of clean rooms that I would see in other types of manufacturing. If I'm going to value a company, guess which company I'm going to value better? The one with the cemetery or the one with the clean room? Uh, as, a, as a potential buyer of a company, I'm more interested in where you're going than where you've been in the past kind of thing. And if I'm going to look at your books, uh, I'm going to look at the past because that's all you have, but I'm interested in whether or not that can continue and whether it's going to grow. The customer thing, big issue, there were you know some organizations still family-owned, uh, relying on just a few customers rather than having a large number of customers. It's important that a company, to increase its value, that it have a lot of customers because a customer can walk away. Uh, I, I talked recently with a company that was about $18 million a year in sales, and they had a customer of about $1.5 million walk away. Well, that's not too bad offhand. That's like 10%, but... For this particular company, that was serious for them to lose a customer of that size. Uh, and, and I've seen businesses where 80% of the income came from one customer. And again, when I'm looking at the value of a company and the ability to take over, that's important to me to know that there's a diversity. When I, when I have a meeting with my own financial planner, he makes sure that I have money over here and I've got money over here and money over there. Well, the equivalent in a business is I've got customers over here and customers over here and customers over here. And so if one business area goes down, I've got something that I can do. I lose one customer, I find another. If two customers end up uh, combining and I was, the cust I was the supplier to one but not the other, well, how am I going to get the business or am I going to lose the business? as a result. So those are things that I, I look at. Uh, there's not a whole lot on the government side, but I'm sure that your uh, members have been affected by the tariff thing with the steel imports. Um, 
I had uh, another manufacturing company talk about it, and and they were getting their stuff from Asia through Canada to here. And so initially it didn't impact them, but now it's impacting them. And so everybody is feeling already the impact of the tariffs. Uh, and, and unfortunately, that increases your expenses, and you rarely have any way of changing your revenue to your customer to account for that increased cost that you have. In fact, many of your um, members deal with the automotive industry, and they probably all have cost-down requirements where every year they have to come up with cost savings, not cost increases to them. So that's an issue on the supply side and on the government constraint then as to what they're doing. You indicated that you and your son spent most of uh, the last two years, 2016-2017, looking at looking to buy a business north of Seattle that you could run that he could run. I guess first of all, did you buy anything, and what did you learn uh, along the way in terms of how to value a business? Very interesting. So we looked. We actually hired a buy side broker to help us find a business uh, because some of the best businesses that you might want to get for a reasonable price are probably not on the market today. Trying to find them, uh, there's an outreach effort you can do uh, to find them with emails and phone calls and things like that. So we went through that process rather as well as looking at talking to brokers up there and saying, well, do you have a business available? I was shocked by the poor service that the brokers are providing to businesses. They would get a, a two or three year financial statement and they would do a very poor job of dressing it up and trying to understand it. They would give me a proposal that looked like a cartoon. Literally, I had mm. I had a a brochure, you know, maybe a 10-page report or something, and the picture was of a smiling truck on the front of it for some lumber delivery or something like this. I mean, this is not professional kind of stuff, and you're going to pay this individual maybe 10% of the sale uh, value of your business, and they're not really doing anything. Uh, so that was number one thing that I learned is that uh, brokers are getting a lot of money for not doing a whole lot for their clients, in my opinion. Some of the things that I just talked about were things that we were looking at. Um, we would try to understand whether we could take over the business and whether or not we'd have to hire the owner to run the business or not because he knew all the customers and he did all the business and he'd never trained anybody to be able to do anything in the business. He'd never offloaded anything. We looked at what could we do with uh, outsourcing certain things. You know, did he do his own accounting? Could we outsource that? What could we do so that we could run the business successfully? And I learned about earnouts and how to make those contingent. And so I've seen some uh, situations where an owner sold a business. They had an earnout that you know over three years time. You know, here's what will happen. And I have seen that at the end of those three years, they ended up owning the business back again because whatever had happened didn't happen. And so they didn't end up with much of any money, and they ended up with their old job back again. We looked at businesses from software to manufacturing to um, landscape. The closest we got actually was a franchise uh, commercial and home painting company. Hmm. It looked very promising. 
the husband had unexpectedly died, the wife was running it, she really couldn't uh, handle running it, the franchise or uh, actually liked my son and I, thought we would be very good. We had to go through behavioral tests and uh, my son had to go to Chicago for a couple of days training and meet a bunch of people. He had to meet the other franchise owners in the area. They all weighed in uh, positively for him. We ended up not getting it though because the franchisor refused to implement one of the little regulations they have in their contract and uh, the woman ended up selling to a friend of the family who was not liked and didn't meet all those other criteria, uh, but we weren't able to find anything. So some of the same things that are in the seven forces, uh, partially that's where I learned some of them, is going through looking at the financials and the projections and trying to see what people had done. Uh, and I'd say too many people wait until the last minute to prepare their business for sale. And so it's not ready. Uh, the broker may work with them, maybe give them a little coaching, but primarily they're just trying to dress it up as to real as to trying to really make it a more valuable business to sell. So I understand you've done some support of people through crowdfunding, uh, you know, angel investing, helping companies raise money from private equity and venture capital as well as to obtain loans, you know, the traditional way from a bank. We often say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, you've recently suggested that value is in the hands of the money holder. What are some things you've learned about the process and how a money holder values a company? It's interesting. I, I deal with uh, the transportation industry to some extent still. I know some high-level people at a company called Tesla. Probably most people in your uh, organization have heard of them, and I would expect that two or three of your uh, members are providing springs uh, or other small items to that company. It hasn't made money in nine years, and yet it's got a value that is huge. So, okay, so what does value mean? It's not necessarily earnings. It is more future potential than it is past uh, profits and things. So a small company, whether they're crowdfunding, which they have no financials, and they're just begging people basically for money. Uh, I, have a, I do some work for an organization called SCORE. It's a nationwide organization that, that helps really, really small businesses. And I've, I've had a couple of people not succeed with a Kickstarter, and I had one that just uh, made the Kickstarter on uh, the 5th of July. So, okay, so she, you know, she got the money that she needs uh, to go forward, and now, of course, she's worried about the next step of actually having to deliver on that. There it was people knew the owner, basically. It's more like friends and family that did that one. I've seen others, though they raised $13 million through crowdfunding, then couldn't deliver the product. Uh, so that was beyond friends and family and into, well, I, you know, I really like what you're doing and what you're giving. I like the product that you say you can give me. So again, it's more about the future than the past. With uh, angel investing, you, you put together a pitch deck. It's about 10 slides, and it basically says, here's my idea. Uh, here's my target market. Here's how big I think it can be. 
Uh, here's why I'm different than somebody else. Here's my really top-notch uh, group of people who are managing this, and uh, maybe they've done it before, maybe they haven't. But again, it's all, well, if you give us $10,000 now, if you're lucky, we'll give you $100,000 10 times that later on. Only about 1 in 10 companies that go through the angel investing process actually deliver on that kind of a promise. But that's it. It's a promise for a future type of thing. I, I guess what I'm saying from all of those different approaches, unless you're um, a bank loan, for instance, um, and you're only looking at uh, being able to make your interest payments and things, that's one kind of an investment. But even talking with the investment uh, banks, the commercial bank loans and things, they're still interested in the, the five C's, you know, your character and uh, your capital and what they have to back up the thing. But they're still also looking a little bit at the future. But that's as close as you can get to somebody who really cares more about the past than they do about the future uh, of your company. Everybody else, they're looking to the future of what you can provide to them and how you can pay them back and make them a lot of money. The money is out there, but it's what people look at it, how they look at it. Is that what you're saying? Everybody is an investor. Uh, the banks being the most conservative, say, of the investors, and the angel investor being the most liberal of investors. Uh, somebody like Bill Gates with millions and billions of dollars to play with, you know, okay, we'll give you $100,000. You know, we don't care if you ever pay it back kind of thing. There's an organization called Kiva, and my daughter gave me $50 to invest through this organization. And they provide loans to people in Africa and Uzbekistan and other things to start businesses. Mm -hmm. And so I carefully looked through the different things and, you know, I, it, was, it wasn't even my money. My daughter gave it to me as a birthday present. Uh, and so I, I invested it. But I still looked carefully at, well, is this guy doing something that makes sense? You know, he's building homes, he's building tables, he's growing crops, or what is he doing? Uh, is he going to be able to pay back the loan? And, you know, fortunately, I got lucky. All the ones that I, there were like three different, four different people I've loaned to through that process on that original $50. Uh, that have all paid back. That's the most liberal where you don't really care, but that's that's charity, basically. That is not investment. Everybody else is investing their money, and they expect some sort of a payback because they could have used the money somewhere else. What should a company, company focus on to build value? So we talked about a couple of them, and uh, for, for your readers, they can take a, a free survey uh, and, and get an idea uh, from these eight value builders how they're doing compared to other companies. Some of them include, you know, one loans we talked about, you know, how invested in the customer is the owner. If the owner knows every customer by name and has to close every deal himself, that's not going to help somebody coming in be able to take over that business. If they have only one supplier of something, that's a problem. Even Ford Motor Company earlier this year ran into problems when there was a fire at a supplier. They had constrained their supply chain so much that they had just one plant providing something, and when it had a fire, they were out and had to stop production of the Ford F-150 for about a week. 
Now that, I'm sure, hurt a number of your members as well, where they ended up not shipping springs for a week's time because Ford had no way of building and getting the rest of the supplies. Processes are an important thing. Um, even in my little consulting business, uh, I publish audio podcasts and video podcasts. I close my books and other things. I have that all written down in a document so that I know what to do when something happens. Your, you have a, in, in your industry a lot of older people who are retiring, newer people coming in. Sometimes it's harder to get new people uh, who are in their 20s and 30s to consider manufacturing businesses uh, rather than something else. They don't like regular work hours. <laughs> they like more freedom, I guess. And having things written down as to how a process should be done is extremely important to uh, what they're doing. Certainly the financials, as we've talked about, if you can't convince somebody that you've got a future potential if you haven't shown that you're making progress in the past in, in where you're at. One of the things that they can do is make sure that they're moving money out of the business to their own personal financial statements. Depending on how their company is set up, whether it's a C-Corp, an S-Corp, or an LLC, their financial advisors and tax consultants can be helping them understand how to move that money to their own balance books uh, for their own purposes so that they can see what's happening. Because when they go to sell, they're going to have to figure out how much money do we need out of this sale. And the more money they've already got stashed away in their own personal account, then the less dependent they are on trying to get a huge sum out of the sale and maybe their books and other things don't support it. So plan ahead, uh, you know, have something uh, uh, in there. Uh, those are a few of them. There, there are eight total that uh, this one uh, uh, gentleman, John Warlow, came up with, and there's some videos available on my website. I give a short 90-second introduction to each of the value builders and things, and I, I'd be happy to send some information to someone or talk to them further about it. So, Paul, what are, what are some of the biggest impediments you've seen that can hold a company back from growing? Obviously, one side is just having people who are out there selling, talking to customers, finding opportunities. I talked with uh, a gentleman from Union City, Indiana. It's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but he's done a good job of doing a variety of things that when somebody had something unusual that they needed, they came and talked to him to say, well, if anybody can do it, this guy can do it. So he had some relationships that helped, and people knew to come to him. But he also has people, he said one of his most recent success stories was somebody in the Detroit area, you know, was talking around and saying, you know, well, you know, we do laser cutting, we do this and that. You know, I, I suppose we could do that. And so a salesman, distributor, whoever it was, was talking with a potential customer and put together in his head, well, that's not exactly what we offer, but maybe we could. And, you know, they brought it in, they gave it a try. It's, you know, it, it wasn't really what they did, but it turns out to be very profitable. So that salesman always being out there doing something is uh, an important part to it, figuring out how you can expand your business. To our earlier statement, 
that salesman helped them move to a new set of customers in a new industry, helped him diversify his portfolio of customers and what he could be doing. Uh, so that's probably the, the first thing that they can be doing to increase their value. Uh, the other is always watching the expense side. In the trucking industry, we're always concerned with how often is a trailer actually being used with a load on it? How often is a truck actually pulling a trailer rather than running what we call deadheaded? Uh, I come out of the auto industry where it was customary to have in excess of 85% utilization of the factory machines, sometimes up to 92, 93%, and then they would get worried because then they didn't have enough time to do the maintenance and uh, uh, things that were needed on the, the machines. But I see the, the spring manufacturing industry and I'm seeing people running 30%, 50% utilization. When I look at three shifts, even if I look at two shifts five days a week, because I see so many of them running 40 hours a week in four days and then they're done. A few operations had machines that ran unattended. I saw scrap rates that would make the automotive industry and the aerospace and the defense industry go crazy because there was far too much scrap going on because those machines weren't producing quality parts uh, that were needed. So those are some areas where I think that, uh, you know, pretty standard in some ways of where people can be going uh, to improve the value of their company. So, Paul, anything else you'd like to add as we close? Well, I'd encourage people to take a hard look at their business, to have a plan, and be looking at each of those seven forces and those eight value builders. Uh, they're certainly uh, welcome to uh, take advantage of taking a 15-minute survey, uh, answering a few questions about their processes and their sales and, and some other things, and they'll get a, a brief report card, if you will, uh, how they compare to about 34,000 other companies, and I'd be happy to discuss that with them, and they'll learn something uh, about where their business is and how valuable it is to somebody else based on a lot of other sales. This company, um, you know, has shown where a, a company could be getting only two to three times earnings, but if they work on these eight value builders, they could get six times earnings when they try to sell the company. That's, that's a whole lot of money. Uh, it can be more profitable when they try to exit to go through that process than to increase their sales by 50% because their expenses also typically increase at the same time. And so the value of the company didn't necessarily go up nearly as fast if they concentrate on the things that are of value to a buyer. Well, I think you're saying that even if you're not planning to sell, you should be thinking that way, right? When we talked about angel investing, mm -hmm. they immediately start by saying, well, who's going to buy you out? That's part of the pitch that you make is that, you know, who could eventually buy you out for 10 or 20 times or literally even 50 times, uh, you know, what we're investing so that's how we're going to make our money. And yes, uh, uh, any owner should be thinking eight to 10 years before they're thinking of selling their business, how they are building the business. They may be selling the business to a, in the future to a competitor, to a strategic buyer, to a dedicated employee that they really value. 
they could be trying to take a step back and be trying to send it to their own family members. But even then, you have to put a value on the business that somebody will believe uh, and, and stuff. So they should be thinking about it all the time. To me, it's, it's part of strategic planning. Paul, thank you so much. Uh, love your insights, and I uh, know that you've spent some time with our spring members, so uh, I know they appreciate what you've uh, been able to teach them. Okay. That's great. Thanks, Gary.